All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Jay Popovich. I'm a member here at Covenant Life. Um, glad that you are here. And um, as said earlier, we will be in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple in front of you. In one of those Bibles, the page number is 163. In the other Bible, it's page 934. So enjoy that puzzle for a few moments. And I'm um, excited to um, share God's word with you this morning. Beginning with the great revival of 1907 in Korea, when less than 1% of the country was Christian, and now today, when 10 million Christians live in South Korea alone, Pastor David Platt emphasized the importance of the prayers of church leaders in provoking God to act. Prayer is God's chosen way of directing his actions toward the world and shaping history. Platt told prayer leaders at a national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. back in 2019. Spiritual awakening started in South Korea, not when the country started praying, but when church leaders started praying, like really praying, Platt said, crying out to God all night in prayer, leading their churches to do the same. Platt said, I'm part of a church culture where I preach at conferences and events filled with hours of talks and sermons and Relative minutes of prayer and confession. Leaders in this church culture are known today for preaching and teaching and writing and blogging, organizing and strategizing, planning and planting, but we're not known for our praying. What we're seeing is that God wills to work through willing intercessors. When we pray, God responds, Platt says. In his sovereignty, God has not called us in prayer to watch history but to shape history, end quote. The role of prayer in the mission of God is not a recent discovery. Um, It is the age-old apostolic command that we have in the scriptures, right? The first thing we see the church doing in the book of Acts is what? Is praying. And if Paul is writing Timothy on how the church should conduct herself as a pillar of the truth, It is no surprise that we read here about the priority of prayer in the mission of God. So our outline for our sermon today, verses 1 and 2, we will see the scope of our prayers. And then in verses 3 through 7, we'll get into the motive of our prayers. Why do we pray? If I could tweet the sermon in a phrase, it would be, we need to pray for all people because all people need Jesus. Studying these seven verses have been like climbing a mountain range for me. I I don't climb mountains. I don't think I've ever climbed many mountains, actually. Uh, But when you begin climbing and you start to climb one, you start to see others behind it. And this is what it's been like studying the scripture. It's been one range after another, mountain peaks of grand theological truths. And we only have such a short time this morning to begin our trek. I pray that the Spirit would use the preached word to enhance our view of God and the gospel of his grace. And that would bring us to our knees in fervent prayer for the lost. Uh, So would you pray with me? God, be merciful to us. Our minds are maybe running in a million different directions. And we need to hear from you. So God, would you be kind to give us ears to hear and hearts to believe in Jesus, God, and that you would change us from the inside out by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to recap, 
Uh, we're going through the letter of 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, Paul warned Timothy of false teachers and charged him to protect this gospel of grace, this good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. Chapter 1, verse 15. This, this is the mission of God, to save sinners. And so Paul begins now to instruct the church in chapter 2, verse 1. This is where we pick up our text. First of all, then, first of all, then, in light of these truths with which you've been entrusted, I urge you to pray. This is to be your priority. This is to be your strategy to begin with prayer, corporate prayer. Our prayers need to lead the way as we join God on his mission. Paul is not suggesting or proposing or recommending they pray, but he is urging, pleading with all apostolic authority that supplications and prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul is instructing Timothy on how to lead the church in evangelistic prayer. It's prayer concerning God's mission to save sinners. He implores them to pray a variety of prayers. First word is supplication. This comes from a a root word which means to lack. It arises from this sense of need. And so we look to God as the source to supply all of our needs in his mission. Prayer in general is expressing a dependency upon God for the work. Intercessions is uh, seeking the presence and hearing of God on behalf of others to intercede. It stems from this image of entering a king's presence to submit a petition to him on behalf of somebody else. And thanksgiving, certainly thanking God along the way as he does the work of saving. The emphasis here, though, in verse 1 is not the types of prayers, but that these prayers be made for all people. Pastor John Stott told a story once. He said, Some years ago, I attended a public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on vacation, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine, and we should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession could hardly have lasted 30 seconds. And I came away saddened sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. This phrase, all people, in our passage this morning shows up four times, four times in these seven verses, including verse 7 where it's phrased as Gentiles. Paul is not commanding Timothy to pray for every specific individual in the world, but all types and classes of people. We see this in scripture where all is not absolute but limited by the context. For example, when Jesus commissions Paul to be his witness to all men, he meant not everybody in the entire world, but Gentiles as well as Jews. The God of the Bible has a heart for the world, And we see this from Genesis to Revelation. God has a heart for all people, not just our own little village. Doesn't matter the nationality, the social status, or the criminal record. Paul wants the prayers of the church to have a God-sized scope. If our prayers should have this 
God-sized global scope when we gather, then it must be true of our prayer lives as individuals. And um, in studying this text, I've, the Spirit was kind to reveal to me how much my heart needs to catch up here. I can suffer from, from prayer myopia, this nearsightedness, only praying for what's in front of me, for what I can see. And uh, my heart is helped. My faith is strengthened when we gather as a church to pray together. And our elders cause us to broaden our scope as they put before us a much bigger God-sized agenda for prayer. We need to pray for all people because all people need Jesus. And so something very practical we can do uh, if you don't do it already, is to pray regularly for our international partners. Pray for Noah and the ministry of Haiti Love and his um, raising up of pastors in the Dominican Republic, or for Ross and Dina and their church planting efforts in Wales, or even here in Tampa St. Pete, praying for neighborhoods that you might not know of or know much about, but praying that there would be gospel witness in healthy churches. Begin praying that now. In case it was off their radar on what praying for all people also meant, Paul adds in verse 2, we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul desired that their corporate prayer time would include praying for governing authorities and politicians. Nero was the emperor at the time that Paul wrote this, hardly a fan of Christians. Um, He's actually a very cruel uh, man, and his persecutions against Christians were very, very cruel. Historians would say that Paul would eventually be beheaded under the reign of Nero. And even with this sword hanging over his head, Paul says to the church, when you gather to pray, pray for your rulers even if they're your enemies, that they would govern in such a way that we could practice our faith as Christians, that that they could set policies and would uphold biblical values and give gospel ministry the space to advance. The peaceful and quiet life in verse 2 isn't so we can coast in our worldly comforts. Rather, Paul says, when we pray for the space and freedom to live a godly and dignified life, Um, We're praying that that we would represent Christ faithfully in our city, in our world, that we might shine as lights, as Paul would say in Philippians 2.15. Concerning how the church would interact with the state, the apostle Peter would add, um, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen to this. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think as hard as it can be sometimes to pray for and maybe honor our rulers, Paul urges us to make it a priority to pray for them. And not just for their policies, but for their salvation. Even if they're a Republican, or a Democrat, or a dictator. 
I, I don't know about you, but my heart needs to catch up here too. I pray very infrequent for our governing rulers. I think we can easily talk and write and post and scoff or flat out ignore our politicians. But what if we prayed for our leaders more than we posted about them? What might God be pleased to do through our prayers? What would happen if we as a church prayed more regularly for President Joe Biden and Governor Ron DeSantis and our mayor, Jane Castor, by name for their salvation? that they would come to treasure Jesus above all else and that their policies would promote justice and righteousness and give us the space to live out and share our faith. What might God be pleased to accomplish through these prayers? What if God has ordained that our prayers at Covenant Life would be used to convert foreign leaders and cause hostile governments to soften that the gospel would advance even in the darkest corners of our world. I think we can take our Christian liberty in the U.S. Uh, for granted. Some years ago, uh, it was actually back in 2013, uh, some of us from Covenant Life went to uh, North Africa to meet with some partners out there, and we got there, we sat down with them, they fed us lunch, and then they said, listen, if you share the gospel here, you need to be very, very careful. Like, you start telling other people about Jesus, if someone finds out, if the wrong person finds out, you get deported and they go to jail or worse. Just for sharing. We don't think like that here. Not yet. But we need to pray for leaders, both foreign and domestic, that we could live a peaceful and quiet life, that the gospel would be advanced. We need to pray for all people because all people matter to Jesus and all people need Jesus. Now we shift from the scope of our prayers to the motive of our prayers. And so Paul writes in verses three and four, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When we pray for our rulers and governing authorities to promote peace so gospel ministry can advance, this is a morally excellent thing. It is good in the sight of God and therefore a priority item for the church's corporate prayer agenda. Now, of course, we know from, from scripture and from experience that even when there is resistance and persecution, God's mission still prevails. And it will be through the prayers of his gospel that the prayers of his people, that doors will be opened into places that were once closed off to this good news of Jesus. When we labor in prayer together for the salvation of the lost, it is acceptable and pleasing to God. After all, he is a missional God. God, our creator, became God, our savior. His mission is to rescue a sinful and wayward people from among all peoples for his namesake. This is his heart. And so when we pray for others this way, we align our heart to God's heart, and it pleases him. Now, theologians have spilled a lot of ink over verse 4. In fact, books have been written just on this one verse because it raises questions about the intent and scope of God's salvation for mankind. 
Namely, that if God desires all people to be saved, then as some suggest, ultimately all people one day will be saved. Well, because that's God's desire. And this is called universalism. It is not true. The scriptures are replete with verses that teach people will be judged and perish in their sins apart from faith in Christ. John 3.18, Matthew 25.46, Romans 2.8, and on and on. And so we're left with then, how come all people are not saved if God desires it? Does this mean that God's will can be thwarted? In scripture, there are things that God desires And then there are things that God decrees, what he wishes and what he purposes. Some call it his declared will, like his commandments, versus his decreed will, what he ordains to take place. In thinking of an illustration, I asked my kids, hey, what's something that uh, dad desires for you to do, but I don't will you to do it? And they're like, oh, that's, that's easy, our chores. And I thought, well, hopefully your mother didn't hear that. But that's, uh, let's go somewhere else with that. Um, one of the clearest examples of this mystery, this tension between God's declared will and his decreed will is when we consider the Ten Commandments. And thinking specifically about the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. This is his declared will. And yet... We learn from scripture that he willed, he decreed the killing of his son, Jesus Christ, in order to accomplish our salvation. Isaiah 53.10 and Acts 2.23. When God decrees something to take place, it will happen. Isaiah 46.10 says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Though he desi- when we, when we know from the full counsel of God's word that though he desires all to be saved, he has decreed to save his church, all those who would believe. As Paul writes concerning the church in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, much more could be said about the will of God. But the point of our text is that it's good and pleasing to God when we pray for all people without discrimination. The motivation behind our praying for the world is God's heart for the world. Theologian R.C. Sproul talks about God having this disposition of loving kindness to all people, a genuine desire that none should perish. We see this throughout scripture, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Second Peter 3, 9, God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus even laments in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. God has a genuine desire that none should perish. So may we align our heart to God's heart and be indiscriminate in our prayers for people to be saved because it pleases him. 
but we don't know who God is working on. We don't know whose hearts are being softened by the Spirit to respond to the gospel. But we do know that God uses our prayers to accomplish his mission. That's why prayer must be a priority for the church. I remember watching the news in early 2015 when ISIS walked those 21 Coptic Christians onto the beach in Libya in those orange jumpsuits to be executed. And the photos were chilling. And I remember somebody at the time praying, Oh Lord, that you would raise up a Saul of Tarsus among these captures. This was a prayer dripping in 1 Timothy 1.4 motivation that God would save even the likes of a terrorist. Are there people in your life that you believe are too far gone? Maybe you don't even think to pray for them, or perhaps you've been praying for them, um, but you've given up. You think there is no way God is going to use my prayer to bring this person to faith in Jesus. And Paul says this is exactly what your prayers are able to do. God works through willing intercessors, not to watch history, but to shape history. And so we need to pray for all people because all people need Jesus. And may God give us a desire like his that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the the back part of verse 4. There is a truth on which the destiny of every human being hinges. And it's summarized here in verses 5 and 6. In fact, the first word of verse 5 seems to be Paul's argument for why we should pray for all people. That word for. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Another motive for praying is not just that God desires the salvation of all people, but he deserves the honor of all people. The Greco-Roman culture was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. Remember Paul in Athens counting all the idols and altars in Acts 17? But there was only one God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So not only is there one God, but there is only one way to this God. I think in today's culture in America, we have somewhat of a mixed bag. Um, Some people who don't believe in God. Um, Some, I suppose, who believe in many gods. But I think there are many who believe that there are many ways to this God or higher power or I don't know. Um, not too long ago, I had someone doing some repair work for me. I have a lot of people do repair work for me because I'm not very handy. Uh, but there was this one guy who was in the driveway waiting for me, and he said, uh, hey, man, I'm sorry. He's like, I was just meditating over here. He's like, do you meditate? And I was like, uh, well, I'm a Christian. I, I pray and I, I do meditate on God's word. And he's like, yes. He's like, Jesus is definitely a way to inner peace. And I said, Patrick, I... I uh, I'd love to know what you mean by inner peace, but Jesus doesn't give us the option to consider him a way, uh, but he is the only way to God and the only way to true peace. While this guy uh, was pretty chill, 
Patrick, we do live in a culture that is hostile to anyone claiming to know objective truth, especially when we consider God and faith. You can live how you want. Just don't tell me what to believe, right? I think Ronnie said this last week. You do you, I'll do me, and we're good. It's important to know that Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. Inclusive in that it's for all people who would believe. But it's exclusive in that it's believing in Jesus alone. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. We pray for all people because there is one God and one way to that God. And his name is Jesus. So why Jesus? In verse 5, Paul refers to Jesus as the mediator. Oxford Dictionary says, A mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement, to act as a go-between. The mediator stands in the middle to bring two opposing parties together. So if you borrow money from your friend and you never pay them back, and that person is mad at you, there's, there's a conflict, and you're going to need another friend or a parent or somebody to come in and mediate. What's explicitly implied in verse 5 is there is a conflict between God and man. In fact, if you flip back to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we read God has a law, and there is a list of offenses. There are people who have offended God by breaking his law. If we flip Even further back in our Bibles, we read more about this conflict between God and man as he lays charges against Israel for their sins. Reading a portion out of Ezekiel chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not clean or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have closed their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am defiled among them. Her leaders within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to make dishonest profit. And her prophets have coded with whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, this is what the Lord God says when the Lord God has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery, and they have oppressed the poor and needy and have oppressed the stranger without justice. Verse 30, I searched for a man among them, who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. These are the sins of Israel, strikingly similar to the list in 1 Timothy 1. As one pastor said, Israel is just a case study for the human heart. If we read the Bible carefully, we'll discover this conflict between God and man runs all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden where we broke God's commandments. This is a human race problem, not just a problem for Israel or people in Paul's day. But we've all offended God with our sin. We're all deserving of God's righteous judgment of death and hell 
for our offenses. And yet, ever since this rebellion in Genesis 3, Scripture, the Bible, is thick with anticipation for someone who would come and stand in the gap between us and God. This was Job's longing as well. Confronted with the holiness of God, he says, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. We needed a mediator. A mediator able to represent both sides equally. One who could deal with our sin problem before a holy God. But there was no one among men because we're all offenders. God says in verse 30, I have searched among them and find no one to stand in the gap. But at the proper time, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would say to the Father, a body you have prepared for me. Hebrews 10.5. God himself would make provision. The holy God whom we offended would send his Son to stand in the gap to be our mediator. In Jesus Christ, there is one who could represent both sides. One who is fully God and fully man. The God-man. Completely like us in every way, yet without sin. You see, in Israel's sacrificial system, God established priests to represent the people before him. They would offer up animal sacrifices as a temporary means for an unholy people to have a relationship with the holy God. But the priests, they weren't sufficient go-betweens. You know why? Because they were sinners too. They were part of the offending party. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, in talking about these Old Testament priests, says this, these priests existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Not only were the Old Testament priests insufficient mediators, but the animal sacrifices themselves were inadequate. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We needed not only a perfect high priest who could mediate forever, but we also needed a representative substitute who could pay the penalty for our sin. All of Scripture is building anticipation for this one. Enter Jesus. Jesus Christ, who became our great high priest and the sacrifice for our sins. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, He gave his life as a ransom for all. This mediator gave his life as a ransom for all. A ransom is a payment. Justin preached on this a few weeks ago. God supplied what we could not. In love, God sent his son to satisfy his justice, to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus would be crucified on a Roman cross, a gruesome death, absorbing the full wrath of God as well. He would die, he would be buried, and on the third day he would raise again to live, forever live, and intercede for us. Hebrews 7.24 says, about Jesus, contrasting him with these Old Testament priests. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently, 
Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is why Jesus, this is why Jesus is the only way to God. He walked out of the grave after bearing our weight of sin, dying in the tomb. He walked out of the grave. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, even now. Romans 8, 34, the intercessor for all who believe. And so my application, um, if you are willing, if you're here, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you don't know what this good news is about until today. Um, If you're willing to forsake your sins, forsake all of the ways you're trying to make peace with God, in all of those failed attempts, maybe it's self-effort, maybe it's morality, maybe it's religion, and we're trying to earn our way to God, and there's nothing we can do because we're sinners. We're part of the offended party. Repent from that and turn to Jesus, our mediator, the one who took our place, God's provision. There is peace through his death and resurrection. And you can be restored to God today if you're willing to forsake your sin and cling to Jesus through faith. And so if you have any questions about this, please come find me after service or anybody, any of our members, or there'll be a table out back with some of our members there to be there to answer any questions that you might have. Um, Paul urges us to pray for all people because all people need Jesus. He is the only hope of the world. He is the only hope for our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers, managers, governors, and enemies. And what ignites our prayers with confidence is we don't have to wonder if God is going to accomplish his mission. For the Bible gives us a peek into the throne room of heaven. Would you like a peek into the throne room of heaven? God in his grace gives us that. Revelation 5.9, we read, the worshipers in heaven sing to Jesus, worthy are you. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The victory is his. He already has it. So we pray, church, may we pray with great fervency for the lost and with great expectation in our God. Verse 7 of our text this morning says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's for this gospel message that Paul was appointed. The God that has made peace with the world through his son Jesus and all people needed to know, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too, not just our village, the whole world. And like Paul, though we are not given his specific ministry of capital A apostle, we have been given the work of sharing this message. Not just the pastors and the leaders, but all Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. To tell all men, without discrimination, that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And so to finish this morning where we started, here in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7, as Paul begins to instruct the church of God on how we should operate, how we should function as a church, 
First of all, we should pray. Prayer is the priority. With the mission of God before us and the assurance that God will save all those who believe, let's pray. Let supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Covenant life, let us be unwavering in our prayers. I have to refresh my prayer list. It's too small. So let's, let's grow in this habit of grace together. In our personal life, in our community groups, when we gather as a church to pray, God wills to work through willing intercessors. As Christians, we have the unique privilege to stand in the gap now, to stand in the gap for the lost through our prayers that they would see and believe in Jesus. And let us not grow weary in our prayers when it seems like they don't work, because oftentimes it seems like they don't work. George Mueller was an evangelist who also ran an orphanage in England during the 1800s. One day, George began praying for five of his friends. After many months, one of them came to know the Lord. Ten years later, ten years later, two others came to know the Lord. It took 25 years before the fourth friend was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that he would turn to Christ. And his faith would be rewarded. For soon after Mueller's funeral, the fifth friend came to know Jesus. May we see the priority of prayer in the mission of God. Let us broaden our scope to pray for all people without wavering. For in his sovereignty, God has not called us in prayer to watch history, but to shape history. Let's pray. On this Father's Day, we're reminded yet again that you are a loving Father. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We needed a mediator, a savior, and you sent your son to live and die and rise again that we would be restored to you through faith. God, give us your heart for all people. Give us more of your heart. Burden our hearts to pray for others, even people who are hard to pray for. That your gospel would advance and bring people from death to life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.